This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Covaris, Ranchford Eye Center, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we're going to answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to have you on the air with me and listening today in this wonderful day. Uh, it's beautiful outside, and hope everybody's going to get some time to get out there, uh, walk, exercise, and get some outdoor activities in. Uh, enjoy the sunshine and the vitamin D um, that you will get from the sunshine, but also uh, make sure to use sunscreen and blocks. Uh, if you're listening today, we're going to have some fun. We're going to be talking with Mr. Jonah Francis. Mr. Francis is the vice president of Pansy Home Care Services. And I wanted to have Mr. Francis on for a while because this is an area of medicine that has evolved a great deal recently. Uh, we're seeing people spend less time in the hospital, less time in rehab or nursing homes, and more time at home where they want to be. But they need support services. So we're going to talk with him a little bit about support services that are available and kind of the evolution of that business. In the second half of the program, we're going to have a discussion with Dr. David Bender. Dr. Bender is a psychologist in West Hartford, Connecticut, and we're going to be talking a little bit about suicide. I mentioned this last week, and we're starting to see this increase in suicide overall. But it's an interesting demographic of men in their middle age, uh, particularly white men in their middle age. Uh, interesting that Anthony Bourdain recently committed suicide. Uh, Kate Spade committed suicide. Uh, and we've had other famous suicides. So I want to ask him a little bit about the so-called suicide contagion where people see this and think, okay, and really what role does religion have to play in suicide? I have a lot of questions for Dr. Bender, and he's going to be with us in the second half of our program today. This day in medicine, Dr. George Coetzeus. Interesting, Dr. Coetzeus was a neurologist in New York. He's a Greek-American. He was born in 1918 on this day, on June 16th. What was interesting about him is he was the first that demonstrated that L-DOPA reverses the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Now, this is something we use today. It is the anchor of our treatment in Parkinson's disease. And just that drug has a very interesting history. When we look back, it was first isolated between 1910 and 1913 from the Vicia faba plant, which I believe was a bean plant. And Basically, the L-DOPA portion of this, they found that in the mid-1950s, by using a drug called dopa decarboxylase, it helped break down L-DOPA to dopamine in the brain. Since 1963, we've been using a drug called Cinemet, which is a combination of L-DOPA and dopa decarboxylase. Uh, and in doing so, uh, it breaks down it allows dopamine to be produced in the brain, to get into the brain. So it takes L-DOPA, makes it into dopamine, and gets it into the brain. 
so that people with Parkinson's disease can function much better. We haven't found a cure for Parkinson's disease. None of this is a cure, but obviously helps functional impairment. And the fact that we've been using uh, the same drug now for 55 years for this, I thought it was worth mentioning. That's Dr. George Kotsius, um, a neurologist, and he was born this day in 1918. He passed away in 1977. Some of the things that have been going on in the news, my article this week in the Norwich Bulletin dealt with uh, tick bites uh, and particularly uh, the tick bites that end up causing things like Lyme disease and two other problems, which are uh, Borreliosis, which is from uh, also a bacterial infection. And with that, we see... uh, people develop almost a malaria type of illness. So again, a tick bite, Borreliosis, causing a malaria type of illness. So we use anti-malarial drugs along with antibiotics, as well as anaplasmosis, which we used to call ehrlichiosis. So the point of bringing this up is it's more than just Lyme disease, and you really need to avoid ticks. And the ticks are out there. We're seeing more and more of them this year than in the past, probably due to climactic conditions. Smoking cessation strategies. This was a topic in the New England Journal of Medicine this week. And they did a study to find out what helps people quit smoking. And there are a lot of things have been tried. Uh, many companies, many insurance companies will allow, and employers allow for free smoking aids. So if you're using something like Shantex or Nicoderm, they'll pay for it. So they looked to see what the best strategy was, and they found that the most effective strategy was a combination of free smoking aids and financial incentives. Those financial incentives, particularly a lower rate for insurance, um, a bonus paid uh, as uh, in terms of salary or any way that an employer could keep their insurance costs down. So financial incentives and free smoking aids made a huge difference as compared to companies that just provided the free smoking aid. So I think that's something we're going to see more and more of because we really have to cut down on smoking uh, since it has made a big, big dent in our health care budget. Fractures in older people. The first thing we think of when we hear about hip fractures is we think of osteoporosis, softening of bones. An interesting study has shown that in looking not only at hip fractures but fractures in general, that osteoporosis is not the number one cause of fractures in older people. It's actually falling, and that's what really causes the fracture. So it's important to note and be careful as we get older that we should participate in exercises and fitness activities that help us with balance. Uh, One simple exercise I saw demonstrated is just sitting in a chair without arms, arms at your side, and just practice getting straight up and sitting straight down and doing that repeatedly. It's not only good exercise, but again, it helps you with your orientation and balance. Things like Tai Chi and other balance type exercises are super for this. But also, we're used to walking in a linear direction, either straight forward or straight backward. 
and we don't do much in side to side. And that's where we have a problem catching our balance. So that's why people who uh, participate in dancing activities are really helped a great deal with their balance. So if you participate in an activity where you have more side to side movement could make a big difference. The other point of this is obesity is a big factor in these fractures. It's a factor because, obviously, the heavier the person who falls, the more likely there's going to be a fracture. Another article I came across of is about Skyping with a physician. And this is becoming more and more popular, not just for young people, but for older people as well, where you can get into a secure Skype line and have a visit with your physician. I also came across something in Canada, what they're doing for specialists like neurologists are e-rounds or electronic consults. So your primary care physician may have a question about a neurologic problem you're having. That physician, rather than just ordering a consult and making you go and make an appointment and see another doctor, can have access to that physician at particular times of the day to consult by video and go over the patient, to actually demonstrate things in the patient or just discuss a patient uh, with that doctor in order to get that type of consult. So electronic rounds are gradually becoming more popular, and I think we're going to see more of it with more electronic access to physicians. Next up, we're going to be chatting with my guest, Mr. Jonah Francis from Pansy Home Care, and we're going to be talking about changes in the home care industry and the assistance available for patients. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds here at WTIC. Those are the sounds of the Million Dollar Quartet. And they are going to be performing at Mohegan Sun at the arena tonight. Also want to remind you that the Barrett-Jackson Auto Show and Auction. It's actually an auction, but it's more like a show. And it starts on Wednesday, uh, June 20th. That's this week. And it, it goes right until next uh, Sunday uh, at the, on the 24th. So for four days at Mohegan. And there are a lot of activities. You could actually ride in some of these cars. I mean, it's a great opportunity. Um, let me give you the phone numbers here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. My guest is uh, Mr. Jonah Francis. Mr. Francis is the vice president of Pansy Home Care Services in West Hartford, and we want to talk a little bit about home care. Jonah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Dr. Alessi. Jonah, a lot's gone on in the home care industry, and there have been so many changes. Can you bring our listeners up to speed a little bit on what has prompted those changes uh, with respect to home care? Sure. So there's a lot of different reasons as to why there is changes in the industry, the home care industry overall. Uh, four, uh, three reasons that I can think of uh, right off the top is the cost of the increasing cost of long-term care whether that's hospitals, nursing homes, and what have you. Um, next is the increase, uh, the increase in, the demo, in the demographic of individuals 65 and over. That population continues to increase. And uh, from the U.S. Census that we saw from 2016, which actually was published in 2017, currently um, there in Connecticut alone, 
of our population as senior citizens, and it's looking to grow between 2010 and 2040 to 57 percent. So that's a huge growth in the senior citizens that we're seeing today. So that's another reason why we see a lot of changes. And last but not least, people just want to stay home. Um, you know, we go, we work very hard to buy the things that we need, including at home, to come after work and, you know, relieve some of those stresses and anxieties that we feel, make it a very comfortable environment for ourselves. So even if we get sick one day and we need extra assistance, at least we're getting that in the comforts of an area that we're familiar with, our home. When we talk about home care, what are we talking about? What are the range of services that are out there that people can get? And I I don't think a lot of people understand that, what that range is. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, most definitely. So there are two different aspects to home care. So there's non-medical aspect, which is what Pansy Home Care Services is, and there are medical aspects, which you could get a nurse or a RN or a LPN. Um, but overall, home care, um, it, it, it kind of is exactly what the name suggests. It's um, for those individuals that need some assistance to get th- in the comforts of their own home to get through their activities of daily living. Um, specifically, those activities of daily living that individuals 65 and over might need some assistance with include bathing, dressing, walking, eating, toileting, and transferring. Um, when we talk about those, so in addition to that, um, yes. housekeeping is always another big issue in terms of uh, people have a problem either preparing meals or mm-hmm. um, keeping their house clean, uh, chores like that, getting the mail. Um, is that also part of home care? Do, we, do you have people who do that as well? Yeah, so the three main um, service types of home care agencies are companion and homemaker services. And the companion and homemaker services is uh, really to help an individual uh, with the socialization aspects and the housekeeping aspects of the job, of their home that they might not be able to um, do on their own. Um, then you have personal care assistants, and personal care assistants are uh, trained individuals, in most cases licensed, um, that are able to come into the home and actually help with those grooming needs. So like I suggested before, the bathing and then helping you get dressed after you're properly bathed. Um, and then you have the live-in services. So that's someone that would actually come in and stay with you around the clock 24-7 to make sure that you are doing good and keeping up to par on some of those services that we just kind of discussed. So the socialization aspect, uh, the housekeeping aspect, cleaning up, making sure the house stays clean and tidy, um, and then also the actual grooming that you would need. Jonah, one of the programs that's really catching on here in Connecticut has been Money follows the person. And in these last few minutes, can you explain to everybody what this program is? Because it's fairly innovative, and I think it it brings a lot of savings to everybody involved in the home care system and involved in the health system. Oh, yes, I agree. So Money Follows the Person is a federal program um, through that helps Medicaid individuals uh, currently living in long-term care facilities um, like a nursing home and, again, a hospital, uh, transition back into the community. Once again, it helps Medicaid individuals, so not Medicare, which are individuals 65 and over. As long as you have some form of disability and in need of assistance, Money Follows the Person is a great opportunity for you to gain back some of that independence uh, that you had before. Um, it helps you, it pairs you with a transition coordinator that would help uh, and keep everything together with your care team 
So if you have a social worker, um, a case manager, uh, family members and loved ones that would also like to contribute, um, it keeps everybody informed as to what is going on. And that transition coordinator then goes and finds the best resources, including a home and modifications to that home or apartment that you would need in order to live a comfortable life at home. And also they get, you know, service providers such as ourselves to come in and provide that specific service that you're lacking and need help with. So literally, we're taking Medicare participants who are on an entitlement program who are in a nursing home. We're we're just plucking them out of the nursing home putting them back in their community and providing outpatient support for them. In your case, the non-medical support, but that support that they need to get back into the community. Yes, most definitely. And they don't just leave you on your own. Even though they're giving you all of these options and choices, they help them walk you through each specific step that would be needed to feel comfortable and feel like you're, you still have your independence. It gives you the decision-making power um, that you otherwise might not have. But yes, Dr. Alessi, to answer your question, they pair you with a transition coordinator to help you to find all of the resources and live in um, places necessary so that you can get back to home and be an active member of your community and feel independent again, regardless of the help that might be needed. One of the problems, Jonah, that everybody has is for patients, even in their home, is they don't like people coming in their home. Yes. Um, there are always security questions, things like that. So I'm assuming that the people who you're sponsoring to come into somebody's home have been, you know, bonded and checked and things like that. Yes. So there's actually two different ways because money follows the person. Um, they, the, it gives the uh, client the ability to actually go and hand select an individual caregiver, but it also gives them the ability to once again um, select an actual home care agency much like ours. And with selecting an agency, um, the things that the agency can relieve are some stresses and fears because they do their background checks and drug screenings to make sure that you have an adequate um, and licensed or trained or fully trained and understand personal care assistant to take care of a specifically designed care plan that addresses your needs. Um, so, you know, then you have spot checks that a home care agency would do to make sure that those um, those duties are and care plan is being executed to uh, make sure that, again, you pick up on patterns and things of that nature so that we can fully address it and keep everybody that needs to know in the know about your actual symptoms and how you're progressing and getting better so that we can continue to make adjustments to continue to service you and give you the care that you need at the actual time that you need. Uh, Jonah, how do people reach out and somebody who's listening now who needs home care services, how do they get in touch with you over at Pansy Home Care Services? Sure. So there are two ways that you can get in touch with us. You can give us a call at 860-212-6433, or you can reach out to us via email at ask at pansycare.com. So once again, that's ask at pansycare.com. Jonah, thank you for spending time with us and really educating our listeners a little bit more about uh, home care services. And thanks uh, for all the good work you and your mom do over at Pansy Home Care Services. God bless, Dr. Alessi. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Mr. Jonah Francis from Pansy Home Care Services. It was great chatting with him. There's so much changing in the home care uh, lineup. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with another guest. Uh, we're going to have Dr. David Bender on, and we're going to chat a little bit about a lot of the questions that have been coming up to us in email about suicide. 
Why do people commit suicide, especially very successful people? So you're listening to Healthy Rounds. Our phone number's here, 860-522-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to have you back for the second half of our program. Uh, In this part of the program, my guest is uh, Dr. David Bender. Dr. Bender is a psychologist. He's a doctor of psychology and in practice in West Hartford, and he's joining us. We want to talk a little bit about suicide and the so-called suicide contagion. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, Let's get right into it. Uh, People are concerned a a lot about, they're hearing more and more about suicide, and obviously it's the famous suicides, the people who kind of have everything and are in the news, and when they commit suicide, it gets a lot more attention. But uh, it's not just that situation. Can you talk a little bit in general about suicide? Sure. I mean, and, and obviously, you know, thank you again for having me. And, you know, suicide is, is one of those hard things to talk about in the mental health field because obviously it's it's a tragic ending. It's a, an ending of life, a loss of life. And what makes it so tragic is that it's preventable death. Um, it's not like you know, in your field, you know, like an aneurysm that, you know, we hear about, you know, taking someone's life or, or cancer or something. I mean, this is, this is by and large, these are preventable deaths, and, and people are making choices uh, to ending their lives. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, as you said, it does get a lot of attention in the news, and, and you know, people like me in this field and my colleagues, you know, we become very concerned when it, not only when it happens, but when it gets the attention that it does. Uh, and, and, and one of the primary reasons is what you already mentioned, is the so-called contagion effect. Is there really a contagion effect? You know, there really is. And, and I say this not just from, you know, the research and studies that I've read, but the patients that I work with, both in, in, in West Hartford, as you mentioned, and also at, at my, uh, uh, my other job at the, at the Institute of Living at Hartford Hospital. You really become concerned when, it, when a suicide gets a lot of attention, either in the media or if it happens for school-age uh, students and it gets a lot of attention in a school system, you become very concerned for those whom we would call an already vulnerable population. Um, I'm less concerned for those who have no psychiatric history whatsoever, no symptoms of depression or other mood disorders. Um, they, folks like that will hear about it say it's tragic, say it's sad, you know, be saddened by it. By and large, those folks then rebound and move on and, and get back to their normal baseline. But for those vulnerable, either students in the schools or, or you know, folks listening to what's being covered in the news, I absolutely think that, uh, believe in a contagion effect because it makes the possibility of committing suicide much more of a reality. As you can imagine, you could, you could just imagine someone saying, wow, you know, so-and-so in the news with all his wealth or so-and-so in the news with all her wealth did this, um, I guess it's, it's an option now. It's now on the table. Is it kind of a bimodal increase in the sense that um, we're seeing it in young people and older people? Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, it's still one of the top causes of death in the, you know, in the, in the adolescents and the uh, um, uh, young adults that I work with primarily. But it's also one of the highest causes of death in, um, interestingly, in middle-aged uh, white males uh, between the ages of you know mid 40s to mid 60s, um, it's also a top cause of death in, in that and 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 in that in that age bracket, it's actually uh, on the increase. So I guess we have to get to the question: Why? 
in the sense of people are always asking themselves why. Somebody who seems to have everything, money, fame, the things we put the most value on in society, why are they killing themselves? And and so what's the answer? Yeah, so, you know, obviously when we hear about these celebrities in the news, you know, a person like me can't even can't comment on that. I've never met them. I've never worked with them. Obviously, for privacy reasons, even if I had, I couldn't tell you on air. Um, but, you know, the, the reality is, you know, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. We don't know what kind of psychiatric st- struggles were, were ongoing. We don't know what kind of substance abuse was ongoing. And those are, you know, the highest risk factors for um, um, suicide, you know, depression and depressive symptoms being number one. Uh, and then when you add substance use prescribed or not, you know, legal or not, I'm not just talking about, you know, so, you know but, you know, alcohol and prescription meds. You know, when you add substances and intoxication, the, the uh, probability, the likelihood, the risk for suicide skyrockets astronomically. Um, more generally, not talking about the celebrities, but talking about that demographic I mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, there's a, there's a study came out uh, last year that got a lot of coverage uh, where it talked about these deaths, deaths of despair. And it was a very fascinating study, fascinating hypotheses. And they were, the proposal was that, um, or the idea that was being put forth, was that um, in uh, an economy with declining job markets um, and in an economy where, you know, things like uh, divorce are on the rise and, and you, know, you know, marital discord um, is, is then also on the rise, that um, there's, a, there's this population of, of white males, often, more often, uh, without college degrees, that are finding themselves more and more squeezed out of, uh, of the job market. Um, and they may be turning to substances, uh, which, as I mentioned, elevates their risk for suicide. Their, their relationships, their study relationships may in turn be crumbling, and that also we know it puts them at much higher risk for suicide. Um, um, relationships uh, is one of the highest protective factors, and it's always something I'm listening for when I'm evaluating someone who's suicidal. You know, it, it's interesting because someone had asked me that, and, and now that I've become older, I, I often – as we get older, we spend a lot more time reflecting on what we've accomplished and what we haven't accomplished in some cases. And I've always wondered if that despair over a perception that your life has not been full um, precipitates that. Would you, is, would that fall into it? it? Absolutely. I think it's one of those factors that, that's very well said. I think it's one of those factors that in of itself, by itself, it would not necessarily take the quote-unquote, you know, psychologically healthy individual and cause him or her to become suicidal. But if you take that variable where someone looks back at life, a state, and when they're at a certain stage of life and they're reflecting and they're filled with more regret um, and, and believe they made bad choices or didn't make, you know, as much of themselves as they could, and you couple that with some of the other factors I described, I absolutely think that increases risk for uh, depressive symptoms, depressive symptomatology, and and then in turn suicidal behaviors. One of the things you mentioned was you explore their relationships. In what respect do you explore the relationship in terms of married or having a partner or socially? How how do you explore that and what are the kind of red flags in that category? Yep, no, absolutely I do. I mean, and, and for all those things you mentioned, whether it's, you know, a marriage, a, a committed relationship, uh, friendships, 
Those are all thought to be protective factors with the thinking that you not only have more people around you who provide, you know, regularly around you who provide support, but those are also people that ideally one can turn to. And we know more often uh, women are thought to do this than men, but we're hoping that with people around you, if one is struggling, he or she is more likely to talk to people with whom he or she already has established relationships. And if something is amiss, that person can reflect that back and say, hey, you know what, maybe you should talk to someone about that. And again, it's not a perfect protective factor, but it does increase the chance that someone might seek help, even at the urging of someone else, a friend or a loved one. Um, You know, conversely, when I'm listening to parents or significant others, you know, referring someone to me or saying, you know, I, I have these concerns, if I'm hearing that, for example, a, stu- you know, a high school or a student, a college student, or really anyone of any age, has all of a sudden turned to isolating more, um, canceling plans last minute, um, not spending time with the friends that he or she typically spent time with, that's a big red flag for me. Not just for suicidality, but other mental health disorders. Isolation is a real risk factor. And I'll say often to folks in my practice that I can take the healthiest person on this earth and put them into an isolative lifestyle, and he or she will psychiatrically decompensate. This is so interesting. We're going to take a short break, but I want to get back into some of these other factors that may be causing people and resulting in this increase in suicide. Um, Actually, the phone number, I wanted to give Dr. Bender's phone number so everybody has it. Um, If you need to reach out to someone, if you need ongoing care, um, Dr. Bender's number is 860-331-8649. He has an excellent website, and his last name is spelled B-E-N-D-O-R, Dr. David Bender. We're going to be back with Dr. Bender and chat a little bit more about suicide, some of the signs and some of the things that are really precipitating factors to having someone commit suicide. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. We're entering our last segment here, and we're chatting with Dr. David Bendor. Dr. Bendor is a doctor of psychology, and we're talking about suicide. Um, David, getting back to to the topic, one of the things I read recently was sleep being a big factor in suicide, and particularly people with insomnia. Can you talk a little bit about that? Do you find that in your practice? You know, it's interesting. You know, so that's that's a very important study that's that's going to need a lot more research. And 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 I I will um, find. So sleep is often a huge problem in psychiatric populations, and and I'm going to pull back a little bit, not just in regards to suicide per se, but in some of the uh, mental health disorders of which suicide are, are uh, you know, highly correlated. So, for example, depression, uh, anxiety as well. Um, when people aren't sleeping well, um, when I'm coming this, you know, from a psychiatric perspective, their functioning decreases. There's no ifs, ands, or buts, and their problem-solving ability decrease, decreases. And as we all know, our, our threshold and our frustration, frustration tolerance also decreases. And so when a person has uh, less of a capacity to problem solve and they're more exhausted, they're just drained, they're spent, it absolutely can lead to increasing uh, an increase of depressive symptomatology, which then in turn can lead, especially for an already vulnerable individual, 
can lead to spike in suicidal ideation behaviors. So I'm really glad you brought that up because often when I work with both in my outpatient practice and then with often a more acute population at Hartford Hospital, uh, we're always addressing sleep as readily as we can because it has such a kind of an umbrella effect, if you will. Yeah, this has been a big problem in my practice because I treat athletes, many of them professional athletes, and Mm -hmm. their schedules are so erratic that it's very hard to get into a regular sleep schedule. So you'd be surprised how many professional athletes and performers um, have a lot of difficulty with sleep. Uh, you know, sometimes it, it really hits the press. Uh, Michael Jackson uh, being most famous, again, he was using propofol to try and get some sleep. That's how right. desperate people become, that he's willing to go under general anesthesia just to get some sleep. So uh, it really makes people more desperate um, overall. One of the other things I guess I wanted to touch base with you is religion. In the sense of, has religion played a role in suicide from the standpoint that there are many taboos in in the Catholic Church and in other uh, Christian churches? uh, The belief is that you won't get to heaven if you commit suicide. Um, Obviously, we have uh, radicals out there who think that committing suicide does get them to heaven. Um, in terms of these uh, bombers and, and people of that nature. Can, right. can you address how religion might play a role, if it does, in suicide? Yeah, and I'm going to talk, you know, again, it was like you're saying, you know, more, in the more commonly what we know of, um, you know, more the, the general population. And, and, again, another great question, because when I sit with someone who's depressed, and I'm, I'm, I want to, or potentially depressed, potentially suicidal, and I'm asking, I'm asking about risk, risk factors, absolutely. You know, I and all my colleagues are asking about risk factors. But we're also asking about protective factors, such as, and it's very simple, what are some of the reasons that you haven't committed suicide, or if you've thought about it, that it hasn't become a plan, if it's become a plan, why you haven't followed through? And we call these protective factors. And I mentioned some of them before in terms of relationships and friendships. Pets is actually a very popular one. But religious, uh, religion and religious beliefs often are as well. And you are absolutely right. There are folks I have met with, and they'll say, and they'll come across and present my office or at the hospital, you know, very desperate, very dire straits. And, and I'll ask them, you know, what, what have you thought about suicide? Let's talk about, you know, to what degree you've considered suicide. And some of them will sit right upright in their seat and say, oh, no, no, as bad as it is, I will never do that. And they will cite religious beliefs as a protective factor. So, uh, so obviously it is a protective factor, which is uh, tremendous to know. I, I guess sometimes when you query a patient— or anybody, and people shouldn't think you have to be a professional. One of the things that we emphasize really is if you think someone's thinking of suicide, ask them um, and just come right out and ask them. But one of the challenges I've had in the past, and I don't know if it's a challenge, no, I haven't had it recently, is someone, I ask people if they have weapons in their home, um, if they're thinking of committing suicide. And if they do, I guess the first thought is get the weapons out of the home. Um are we able to do that now in Connecticut? You know, I you know I wish I, I that's a great question. I, I don't. I, I'm, I honestly am not sure about that. I know I've been following other states and some of the states. I think it was Florida and some other states in terms of what's being allowed. Um, so you know that's saying that you know I, you know you are you know we can definitely look up once you know once we're off the air. But I will say that that I want to say actually two things because you mentioned what you do in your own practice, or even you might do this with you know a friend or family member, not in your professional capacity. Yes. We know, we know now, that the, the research backs this up, asking someone if they've thought about suicide does not introduce the idea of suicide. You won't take a person who's never thought about it in their lives 
ask them about it once, and all of a sudden they're going to leave your office dwelling on it and ruminating. It doesn't work that way. So you are correct. Whether it is perfectly okay and appropriate and certain settings expected to ask them if they considered it. Um, when it does come to weapons, especially if there's anything, then yes, we, we do look. And, and again, in cases like that, um, if I can't necessarily go a legal route, I'm definitely engaging the family and loved ones of the person I'm interviewing and saying, get these weapons out of the house, um, get them to you know, another destination where they're locked up, et cetera, et cetera. But absolutely, because what you're trying to do, and, you know, and, and I'll do the same with other, other legal means, such as prescription medications and things like that, depending on what the troubled person's thoughts are, um, I want to get the means to commit suicide as far away from them as possible. So if they have the urge, and this is, you know, uh, you know, realistically speaking, because if the person has the urge, what my hope is that we can have interventions that make those means further and less attainable and, and literally frustrate the urge, the thinking being that by the time they might travel somewhere that they might be able to do something, um, perhaps the um, urge to commit suicide has lessened, and there have been opportunities for other interventions to take hold. Uh, and actually, in all the cases I've had, I've usually been able to get in touch with a family member who has gone and taken the weapons from the home. I guess my next question on this one is, the next question we're always taught to ask a patient is not only have you thought of suicide, but have you thought of how you want to commit suicide and see if they actually have a plan. Again, is this important for a family member to ask someone? I mean, we've always been taught this in a professional capacity, but I'd like the public to know if if you have someone who says, yes, I thought of committing suicide, should they go and ask that next question? Right. And, you know, it does depend on the relationship the person has, right? So if this is, you know, you know, out to dinner with a couple that you're just meeting for the first time. Yeah, I wouldn't you know, think no. Yeah. Okay. You know, those guys, right? But, and again, I'm exaggerating there, but it really does depend on the relationship and the kind of discussions that you've had with the person. But, but absolutely, especially if the person is striking you as really distraught, and that doesn't take a, a PhD or an MD to kind of discern. If a person strikes you as very distraught and, or tearful, or their behaviors have just shifted, I mentioned the isolation, or they're posting some very bizarre, troubling things online, just real dramatic shifts of behavior coupled with a troubling presentation like right in front of you, it is very appropriate to ask if they're ever having those thoughts. It's appropriate if, if they answer readily to even ask, you know, if they've thought about how to do it, especially if you have a chance to intervene right there. Like, they, you, know, they, you know, I've had a person who was having fantasies of doing it later that day, and, and they, they named the bridge. I had just met them in my office for the very first time. Um, and, again, I know that's more of a professional setting, but it, it never, it doesn't hurt to ask. And the important thing is, is that, um, as you said, we're first querying if they've ever thought about it, and that if they say yes, that's a risk factor. If they get to the point where they're actually making plans, that's an even you know, graver risk factor. And also then you know, we would ask if they have thoughts of following through with those plans. If those three things, the ideation, the intent, and the plan, that puts the person at the highest risk factor. Um- do the suicide hotlines help? I mean, and I want to repeat that number. So everybody has, you can't repeat it enough. We've seen it all over the 1-800-273-8255. Do those numbers help? They do. Um, I, and, I, and, I, and I say that unequivocally because I've spoken to people uh, who have used them. Um, I met with a young man earlier this week, uh, and, I, and I not only gave him that number, I gave him, you know, as I mentioned, I'm over at Hartford Hospital, so I gave him our 24-hour assessment uh, uh, number hotline and, and obviously let them know about 911 and, 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 you know, and giving a person that 
option that they know they can speak to a trained professional, an actual person, and that they don't have to just be left with their thoughts at the end of their workday or if they're home alone by themselves till they go into their job or school the next morning, knowing that there's someone out there definitely makes a difference for a lot of people. Uh, David, I wanted to thank you very much for your time today. We're coming up on the end. I know we have a call, but I'm going to take that off the air. So, um, But I, I just wanted people to understand that there is help for suicide. And all, I want to thank you for all the work you do. Uh, I want to put, give your phone number out again at 860-331-8649. That's Dr. David Bendor. He's in West Hartford. David, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, that was just great uh, to be able to chat with him uh, a little bit, and especially about this. You know, it, by I should personally let people know I did get to meet Anthony Bourdain uh, one time in an airport. We were in Haiti, kind of stranded there, and he just impressed me as just a regular guy. Everything you hear about somebody like that, um, sitting with his crew, uh, entertaining people, taking pictures with folks. It was just amazing and just sad, sad loss. Many thanks to our studio producer today. Joe Acosta has been on the board sitting in for Mike. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. And uh, next week, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Nia Mae Wilson about breast cancer. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Covaris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com.